Well, amen. We're going to continue our series in the book of Mark. And I think God is looking for responders, people who respond to his grace, respond to his invitation, respond to his presence. God's even looking for those who are desperate for him. We often find in moments of desperation that we feel far from God, and yet God uses those moments of desperation to actually connect with us in, in powerful ways. Now, I'm desperate for ice cream many times at night. I'm desperate for Saratoga chips. We made homemade Saratoga chips this week. So sometimes we're desperate at that level, but, but I'm talking the kind of deeper things where you suddenly you're, you're desperate to get married, desperate to have a child because you've waited so long, desperate to have a child return home, desperate to be healed of sickness, desperate to be out of the depression, desperate to find that purpose and that plan God has for you. The kind of desperation says, God, I need forgiveness. I need connection with you. I need help. We're doing a series at our exploring service called uh, Wow Moments. That's what the shrine to me over here is, in case you're wondering. And I remember my, uh, my freshman year of high school, going through a time of severe depression. I remember there was a time I was desperate for God. It was during those times I was showing up at church, not because I had to, but because... I needed to hear from God just to make it through the next couple of days. And that was a deep time of connection with God for me. As we look back at the passage we've been in and the chapters preceding it, Jesus has been wandering back and forth across the Sea of Galilee, the religious side to the rebellious side, looking for those to respond. And what he's found is pretty amazing, actually, because back in chapter 3, he's in the religious area of the Sea of Galilee. And religious people... The religious people, the Pharisees and his own family, reject him, which is shocking. You think when God shows up to earth, a a Jewish rabbi shows up teaching the Torah, the religious people would accept him. But they don't. They don't respond. They're not desperate for him. They reject him. Even his own family does. In the religious area, he turns to this group and says, hey, you need to check your soil. Check the soil of your heart. I am throwing seed out of what God is doing, and you haven't prepared your heart in such a way to respond to me, to be desperate for me, to be connected to me. After that story, he heads over to the other side of the sea, to where the rebellious, the pagans, the, the unconvinced live. And on his way there, a storm comes. As Doug shared with us, it's not just any storm. It's a spiritual storm. It's a demonic storm at its origin, because Jesus has to rebuke it with the same terms he used when he rebuked the demon. Someone doesn't want the good news to get to the unconvinced on the other side. Someone doesn't want the unconvinced to hear that Jesus has come for all. He gets to the irreligious area after coming against a storm, and the religious people had rejected him, his own family had rejected him, but a demoniac, a man with a demon, responds to him. He is so desperate in his chains, so desperate in his appetites. He's like, I need God. I want that. He wants to go back with Jesus. And Jesus says, no, no, go tell your friends. And he tells his friends and his friends respond to this Jesus. So then Jesus takes his disciples and heads back over to the religious area. And in the religious area, he's going to find two desperate Jewish leaders. One's a leader and one's not. Two Jews who respond to him. And as soon as we get just a glimmer of maybe two people responding to God, we immediately go back to the idea of the religious people rejecting him. There's a theme going through all these chapters, which is, are you a responder? Are you desperate enough for God? 
wrote a question down in my notes a few months ago as I was thinking about this passage. And the question was this. Am I as desperate for God as he is desperate for me? Are we as desperate to be in relationship, to be in connection with God and his heart as he is desperate to connect with us? We're going to look at two desperate daughters and one desperate father. And I I think what we're going to find is that when you realize the new relationship you can have with Jesus, that relationship gives you access. You're an heir. You're a son. You're a daughter of the Most High. Think about how much access daughters and children have. I mean, the President of the United States, for example, senators have some access to him. His cabinet has some access to him. His wife has some access, but not as much as a daughter. I mean, your wife can turn to you at 2 in the morning and say, Oh, I'm thirsty. Could you get me a glass of water? And you might say, Your leg's broken? Get your own glass of water. But your daughter comes to you and says, Oh, Daddy, could I have a glass of water? Okay, I'll get you a glass of water. Only your daughter can say, Dad, can you put me up on your shoulders? Sure, honey. And you put her up on your shoulders. Daughters have access. Even my son Quinn, his, he's got special access. At six years old this week, uh, he loves the night-night game where he drags any two people he can find to go lay in bed with him. And then he just throws the blanket over him and laughs, tickle me's, tickle me's, tickle me's. And you just brought into his joy. And so when we have a, a family in for Sierra's graduation, he'd grab any two fingers he'd find. My dad and my wife's mom. And next thing I know, they're sleeping together upstairs with my son. Tickle me's, tickle me's because of the access of a child. And God wants us to know that There's a special access when our relationship with him changes. Two desperate daughters. Let's look at the first one. Jesus had just crossed over again by boat to the other side. He's back on the religious side in Capernaum. A great multitude gathered to him. So Jesus is coming across the sea. This is a synagogue we've talked about before. This is the Apostle Peter's house where Jesus stayed. Monstrous house next to a synagogue. Imagine a giant gathering here, a multitude, a crowd has shown up because someone said, Jesus is coming. And in the middle of the crowd is one man. You wouldn't see him from the distance. He'd just be a part of the crowd. But he was one of the rulers of the synagogue. He's a religious man. He's a ruler. He's a leader. He's a decision maker. He's a person who's used to walking in the room and people recognize him. People defer to him. People ask his advice. He has power. He has influence. He has money. He has connection. He has all the things that society says make you happy. Plus, he has God to boot. But today, he is desperate. None of those things he has can solve the dilemma he faces. His name is Jairus. Jairus by name. And when he saw him, he saw Jesus. He, a man who doesn't need to fall for anyone, falls at the feet in desperation before Jesus. And he begged him. A man who doesn't beg for anything is begging Jesus, please, please, please. And he begged him earnestly, saying, My little daughter lies at the point of death. And none of my resources can fix it. None of my resources can do anything about this. I need you here. This isn't a formal prayer. This isn't a a, a prayer of, oh God, I thank you again tonight that I come before you. This is, help me, please. Just come, visit my daughter and she will be healed. And she will live. He's desperate. The word daughter is only used three times in the Gospels. At least certainly in the book of Mark. I think it's the whole Gospel. 
And it's used all in this passage we're going to look at today. Which means there must be a significance to daughtership. It likens back to the book of Isaiah. uses daughter all the time. God turns to his people and says, Daughters of Zion, come, let's be in a relationship. Daughters of Zion, let me be your father. Daughters of Zion, do not turn to other idols. Daughters of Zion, let's have a relationship. So there's something about daughtership that's important in this passage. God calling us back to a relationship. There's also something interesting that the word 12 is mentioned twice in this passage. A little clue. Why is that? Why does he tell us that the girl's 12 years old? Why does he tell us that she bled for 12 years? What's significant about that? Why is he going to tell us that? Let's continue on with the, the story and see. I came uh, face to face with a story this week about a father who was desperate for his daughter. He was dying of cancer. He looks like his grandfather, but this is her, her dad, Jim. Jim's dying of cancer, and he was desperate to make sure his daughter would be cared for and have his love later in life. So at age 11, he hired a photographer to take wedding pictures of him walking her down the aisle. Look at that face on the right of that little girl, Josie. The grief, the despair, mixed with love. Look at her father's face. Here's a man so desperate to love and bless his daughter that he's looking even beyond his own death to make sure she knows that he is still with her even in the times when he won't be physically. I think that must be the face of, of Jairus. Saying, oh, I'm so desperate. I got a daughter who's sick. Only she's the one with metaphorical cancer in this case. Have you been in those desperate moments where you just needed God to show up because all your resources have run out? See, that's desperate. Jairus was desperate. I remember when uh, Sierra, about a year and a half ago, really wanted to go to College of the Ozarks. And there's a 99% rejection rate because it's so hard to get into. I remember hundreds of emails going back and forth. I remember calling the dean and getting finally hold of him and through all the different trappings. And, and he says, well, what's going on? Have you been trying to get hold of me? I said, listen, I'm a father and I'm desperate. I'm desperate to fulfill my daughter's dreams. Tell me what needs to happen. We, we, I want to do everything I can humanly do to get the best chance possible of that 1%. He said, well, the only thing I can tell you is we want folks coming to our school who are desperate they would love the school and they love the vision. I said, you will know of our desperation in the next year. We applied six months before you're allowed to apply. We went and visited the place. I got a meeting with the, with the dean. I talked to all the people in the faculty. And then the day came that the letter came in the mail. And it wasn't one of the nice big ones that say, yay. It was one of the more dear John looking letters. And I took it out of the mailbox and I walked it into our living room and handed it to my daughter. I said, honey, the letter's here. Bracing for the worst, she opened it up. And she burst into tears and said, Dad, I'm accepted. I'm accepted. And, oh, we celebrated and cheered that day. And I said, Honey, why don't you be the first to pray and thank God? She's like, I can't pray yet. I'm crying. I'm so thankful. And I was so thrilled that God had honored the desires of her heart because that's what a father wants. And that's where Jairus is today. But he's going to have to learn to trust God's timing. Think about how desperate he is. And it says that Jesus went with him. But on their way to a daughter who's dying, 
a crowd gathers and throngs against him. It blocks him. It, it keeps him from getting there as quickly and as inefficiently as he would want or he would hope. And, and you're Jairus. You're thinking, my daughter's dying. Let, let's not stop and talk to anyone. Let, let's clear the Red Sea of the people right now. We've got to get there and get there now. But he's going to have to trust Jesus' timing because he's not only going to go through the crowd. He's going to stop and interact and minister to folks. And his timing is going to spell disaster for a desperate dad. So the question I think you and I are going to have is as we go through these desperate moments, we know how it should be fixed, how quickly it should be fixed. We know what God should do, and then he doesn't do it in the timing we hoped. He's reaching out to say, will you trust your father's timing while you're desperate? Because in that great multitude is our second daughter. Now, she's unnamed. She's the certain woman. You talk about ambiguous. The certain woman, she had a flow of blood. And there it is, for 12 years. Why does he mention this? We'll come back to that. And she had suffered many things. From bad people? No, from her physicians. She was so desperate for healing, she had tried it all. I'll try that. All right, that didn't work. I'll try that. I'll try that. She had gone anywhere and everywhere. She had to get out of the sickness. She had to get out of the situation. And, and worse than that, she's desperate. She spent everything she had. And not only was she not better, she grew worse. Now that's desperate. All of your resources, unnamed woman, sickness, and to have an issue of blood was even more significant beyond just the, the physical problems. Because in the book of Leviticus, it says that if you had an issue of blood, you were ceremonially unclean. You couldn't come into God's presence. You were ceremonially unclean, which means if someone touched you while you had an issue like this, they became unclean for a day. So you didn't even have people who could touch you or hug you or comfort you or help you during this time. For 12 years, you'd felt alone from God, alone from worship, alone from the community, alone from friends. Because anyone you touch, you had to say, I'm unclean, I'm unclean. And you were desperate for human touch. You were desperate for God's touch. And here she finds herself thinking, I'm desperate. All I need is a miracle. I don't need to know Jesus. I don't need to bother Jesus. I know he won't touch me. He's a rabbi. I'm unclean. I'm going to sneak in from the back behind him in the crowd. Just touch him. And maybe I'll be healed. That's what she does. She heard about Jesus. She came behind him in the crowd. And look at how many times the word touched is used here. She touched his garment. Most commentators think it's not just any part in the garment. that he, She touched the corner of his garment. Because in the book of in the Old Testament, God describes that he will wrap the widow or he will wrap his people in the corners of his garment. It was a sign of protection. You think of Ruth when she came to Boaz. She asked Boaz to protect her with the corners of his garment. It was a symbol of God's protection and God's care, the corner of the garment. And she reaches out and she says to herself, if only I can touch his clothes, I will be made well. And she does. And immediately, Mark's favorite word again, the, the fountain of blood dried up within her. And she felt in her body that she was healed of the affliction. Oh, that's all I need. I don't need to bother him. I don't need to be in a relationship with him. He's far too busy for a certain woman, an unclean woman that nobody wanted to spend time with. That's all I need. Just one touch. Thank you. And she's about to disappear into the crowd. 
She's about to disappear, never to be seen again. But God has so much in store for her. He doesn't just want to be a miracle dispenser. He wants a new relationship with her. He wants her to have a name beyond just certain woman. So Jesus, immediately, knowing that in himself power had gone out from him, turned around the crowd and said, hey, 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 who touched me? Who touched my clothes? His disciples look at him like, who touched you? We're in a crowd for crying out loud. I touched you. He touched you. John just touched me. He touched me. That guy touched me. It's touching going all over the place. Who touched you? She said, no, somebody touched me. Power went out from me. Jesus was scanning the audience. You could just see she's like, oh, he knows. He knows. And she suddenly filled with fear and trembling. Oh, I'm in trouble. God's got his eye on me. She doesn't realize that God has his eye on her like you have your eye on a piece of art. Where was that face? Where's that woman? And he catches eyes with her. And she doesn't feel anger. She doesn't feel rebuke. She feels acceptance and love and tenderness when he looks around. And instead of fear of trembling, which she began with, knowing what had happened to her, she fell down before him. And I love this line told him the whole truth. See, that's what grace does. That's when you move from religion to a relationship with God. You suddenly get that you're in His grace. You're accepted, everything you've done. And because of that, you start giving God the whole truth about yourself. Because you're in a new relationship of grace where you no longer see God as mad at you or you're working your way into a relationship with Him. He's now your Father. And you bring out the whole truth. And he says to her, second occurrence of the word, daughter, certain woman, daughter, you're mine. Daughter, not certain woman, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. See, rather than her touch making him unclean, his touch made her clean. This is why all heaven is breaking loose. God is here, the purifier. God is here, the all-powerful one. God, the healer, is this. Jesus is God in the flesh. And God is able to transform her and change her. That's what's going on here in this passage. A powerful demonstration of, of God's blessing, wanting to bless his daughter, bless his children, show his protection. I read a story a few weeks ago about a woman who wanted to do that. She wanted to show a blessing. She was desperate to make sure her kids knew they were loved. She was desperate to make sure her husband knew he was loved. She was desperate to make sure her husband's new wife knew she was loved. She too was dying of cancer. She wrote a letter to a friend with a blessing to her husband. She gave it to a friend and said, Now after a few years, hopefully at least six months, if you find somebody new after I die... And it's really serious. I want you to take this to the local radio station. He didn't know anything about this. It had been several years, actually, since she had passed away. Brenda had died of cancer, and David had remarried Jane. He got called to the local Christian radio station. Not knowing what it was, they had a wish foundation. And as they came into the studio, we said, we have a letter here that we want to grant a wish. Began to read, and David couldn't believe it. It was a letter from his wife she'd written years earlier for this moment. She was desperate to bless and make sure he knew that he had her blessing. 
It was a, began with a blessing to whoever his new wife would be. She didn't know who it would be. But she, he said to the woman who's married my husband, he's a good man and I love him. But I want you to know you're going to be raising my two kids and they are a handful. But you have my blessing. And I want you to love them and know that you are loved by me. So the first wish I want is that you would have a day at the spa. I want to give you a day at the spa so that you will know that I love you. You have my blessing and you need a day at the spa if you're raising my two boys. And her husband just burst into tears as she began to talk about her love for her family, her love for him. And ultimately, I think it was a Disney cruise that was given to the whole family. Imagine these boys who miss their mom to hear from their mom from the grave about a blessing, about a love, about a care, about a unity. You wondered whether or not to accept your stepmother, but you had your mother's blessing because she was desperate to know and to let you know that you were loved. It's powerful. That's desperate. Two desperate daughters lead us to one desperate father. You see, the problem is that encounter we had with this woman with the blood flow has caused disaster for our first daughter. So Jesus looks up from talking with her while he was still speaking. Someone came from the ruler of the synagogue's house and said, Jairus, your daughter is dead. That's desperate. If you've not gotten news like that, you've probably gotten news something like it where somebody says you need to sit down. We got the test results back. You need to sit down. The police called. You need to sit down. There's an audit. You need to sit down. Your father passed away. And you know what it's like to sit in this room or in this moment when that news comes and you are in a moment. Your world shakes. Everything stops because you are desperate. I hope there's a pause in the conversation, but maybe there isn't, because the next thing he says is, well, why trouble the teacher any further? His timing was messed up. He couldn't get there soon enough, and she's gone. Now, Jesus is overhearing this, and as soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, give up on Jesus and give up on a situation, he turned to the ruler of the synagogue. I imagine him looking him in the eye and say, do not be afraid, only believe. In the Greek, it's actually a a present, ongoing verb tense, which really means to stop fearing and keep believing. You've been believing, but keep on believing. Keep on not fearing. Keep on trusting that I can work in this situation, do amazing things beyond your imagination. In fact, I'm going to walk with you this long walk back to your daughter's house for her death. Long back down toward the morning, long toward the wailing. I am with you. I am here. I imagine him whispering in his ear as they walk, keep not fearing, keep not trusting, keep pushing against the disbelief, keep trusting that I'm going to work in the situation, keep on it. They come to the house, he's got 12 disciples, but it's amazing that there were three disciples who were desperate to know Jesus. Peter, James, and John, they're so desperate, they get an access to intimacy with Jesus that the others don't. They get to see the transfiguration. It's Jesus! He really is God! Wow! Where's everybody else? They missed it. They weren't desperate enough to know God at that level. As they come to this moment, Jesus says, the three that are the most desperate, Peter, James, and John, you come in and be part of the secret knowledge, be part of the the special intimacy of what I'm going to do in the situation. The rest of you wait outside. You'll hear about it later. As he comes in, 
He came into the house of the synagogue, and it is a circus of mourning and grief, a tumult. And those who wept and wailed out loud, oh, God, why would you do this? Oh, she's dead. Oh, what happened? Oh, she was so young. Oh, way too young. No one should outlive their own daughter. These words are going on and on in the household. Grief and despair. And Jesus walks into all this chaos where they're weeping and wailing loudly. He came into the situation and he says, Calmly. Hey, what's with all the commotion? She's not dead. She's just sleeping. To which there's an explosion of ridicule. People in grief often can immediately go from grief to anger and they ridicule Jesus. What are you talking? You're a rabbi. How unsensitive. How ridiculous. Are you a doctor? We know she's dead. I can't believe you'd say that. And they ridicule him. And as they're going on ridiculing him, he's like, uh-huh, mm-hmm, yeah, I think you should go outside. Yeah, thank, thank you for your comments. Peter, James, and John. And he invites the mom and dad in. I imagine her body's laying on a table. And Jairus is seeing his daughter for the first time dead. And the tears, you can't speak. He thinks, I can't even dare to believe. Jesus said, just keep not, keep not fearing, keep believing. And Jesus sits down next to this daughter who's not breathing, gathers around with mom and dad and Peter, James and John, and in incredible tenderness, incredible tenderness, he looks at her. He says, honey, honey, Time to get up. Talbathakuma. Talbathakumi, which is translated, little girl, I say to you, arise. Which is a really interesting play on words. It's the same thing you might turn to a little girl and say, it's time to wake up. But it's also arise like resurrection. Honey, it's morning. Time to get up. And immediately she gets up. She gets up and now she goes, wow, man, it's been a bad day. Immediately she says, she's walking around. The girl arose and she walked. And the, the grief has suddenly turned to, oh my goodness, look what he's done. They're throwing their arms around. They're sobbing with tears of grief. Now turned to tears of joy. Who would have thought, oh, God is here. God is here. All oh, that he cared. All oh, that he came. All oh, that he overcame. Oh, my goodness. That's God right there. God is in our midst. Peter, James, and John are like, God himself who brings life to death. And in the midst of now the commotion of joy, Jesus looks around the room. His timing had been perfect. This was why he had stopped to help help the other woman. I see him smiling and saying, hey, we need to get that girl a sandwich. I bet you she's hungry. Well, you know, she has been dead most of the day. And just this Jewish sense of humor and tenderness that Jesus injects humor into the situation, uh, a smirk and a wink to say, hey, this is what my plan was all along. I told you to just keep trusting. And then in the middle of the end of the passage, oh, and by the way, she's 12 years old. Why does 12 keep showing up? 
Well, remember, there are 12 tribes of Israel, and so the religious community that studied the Torah were known as the area of the 12. So let me zoom out for a moment and show you something powerful. It'll be fully impacted in chapter 8, but let me give you a taste of just how cool it is of why these numbers keep showing up. You see, the Sea of Galilee had a religious side, including Bethsaida, all the way down to this area. This was the religious side where people, for the most part, were Jewish. They were religious, and, and they studied the Torah. Then there was another side. And this area was the irreligious side. It went somewhere from about here. It's called the Decapolis, all the way to around here. So you have this irreligious side of the Sea of Galilee, where people are unconvinced, and you have a religious side that's here, in this area. The religious area saw themselves as descendants of the Twelve. It was the area of the Twelve. Now, the Decapolis, the Greek and Romans called it the Decapolis because there were ten cities. Pagan cities, the Zeus, and worshipping Hades, and worshipping Dionysus, and Athena, and Artemis. But the Jews didn't call them the Decapolis. They called it the land of the seven. Because back in Joshua 3, chapter 10, Joshua was supposed to cast out seven nations. And he never got them fully cast out, the pagan nations. And because he hadn't got them out... The Jews always saw that area of unconvinced people as unclean. It was the land of the seven. Nobody goes over there. God doesn't care. God hates the land of the seven. Stay away from the land of the seven, which is where Jesus healed the demoniac. Now watch what happens. Every time Jesus is hanging out in the land of 12, watch what Mark does. And when he's hanging out in the land of the Decapolis, watch what he does. When he's in this area, Mark chapter 3, Jesus appoints not disciples. It says the twelve. In Mark 4, the 12, not the disciples, the 12 ask him about his parables. When he's over there, a woman healed of a 12-year issue of blood. He raises a 12-year-old from the dead. In Mark chapter 6, he'll send out the 12, and then he'll feed the 5,000. And when he feeds the 5,000 in this area, guess how many baskets are left over? 12. To say, I am the bread of life, and I've come to religious people who need to be rescued from their good works. Because they think their good works are good enough, and they're not good enough. They're caught in self-righteousness, and I am the bread of life. I am what they really need to deal with their sickness issue, their spiritual death issue. I am the bread of life to religious people who need to be rescued from their good works. And then he swings over to the Decapolis, and here he feeds 4,000. I may have mixed which one's five and four. A multitude. I think it's the 4,000 there. This time he says, how many, um, how many loaves do we have? And it's not five and two like the other time. This time it's seven loaves. And they get all done. And he says, how many baskets do we have left over? Oh, seven. He then turns to his disciples later and says, guys, are you not getting what I'm doing? When I was over on that side of the lake, there were 12 left over. Now that we're over here, there's seven left over. I am the bread of life for the whole world, the convinced and the unconvinced. I go to great lengths because I am desperate to be in relationship with my people who I made, whether lost in their rebellion and bad works or lost in their religion and their good works. I am the bread of life. Are we as desperate for God as he is for us? My son, Javen, he's uh, turned 16 coming up here in September. And we had a great time last couple weeks. We've been doing trap shooting for the first time. And it turns out we're pretty good at it. We're shooting about 80%, just having a great time learning how to control the gun and shoot these things in midair. And 
we just had another great time together. And as soon as we got home, you know, he immediately disappeared into his room to, to play first-person shooter games for four hours. And, you know, where'd Javen go? He's gone again. I, I come into his room off and I say, buddy, man, I had such a good time. He goes, oh, me too, Dad. I said, sometimes I just wish you wanted to have a friendship with me as much as I want to have a friendship with you. And he's 16. He's, he's actually much more interested in me than probably most 15, 16-year-old boys. I'm like, I'm just desperate to have a deeper friendship with you than you want to have with me sometimes. I know, Dad, I do. I just get distracted. Dad, I do. I just, you know, I love my first-person shooter games, and you're not good enough to play. He didn't say that, but that's the truth. Um, he's really kind. and got a kind heart. And as I thought about that, I thought, that's, isn't that what God's saying to me? Chad, I am desperate to be in a relationship with you. I'm desperate to know your heart and to spend time with you. What he says to me is, Chad, why are you so distracted? You see, what's amazing about the story is that the real desperate father is not Jairus, it's Jesus. He's the one running around the earth trying to connect with us, trying to have a relationship with us. He's the one who's saying, I, I want you to want me as much as I want you. So what are you desperate for today? Maybe your prayer today is, God, I need to trust your timing because... I've got a daughter, I've got a situation, and you should have answered it by now. And God says, will you trust your father here? Some of you need a touch of of hope. You need a touch of tenderness. You need a touch of love. And God would say to you, will you you just call out to me? Call out my name? Ask me for the wisdom? Ask me for the direction? I will wrap my arms around you, even though you haven't had anyone wrap their arms around you in a long time, let you know you're loved. Maybe you need the touch of tenderness. You've known a God you respect. You've known a God that you fear. You've known a God that asks you to do stuff. You've never known a God that's tender enough to get down on one knee, be with you in your intimate, grief-filled moments, or even your moments of success, and to joke with you and laugh with you. And you say, I want a God like that because I want to share that kind of tenderness with my family at my workplace. I want others to know that they can have the kind of relationship with God that I have and to live in a way that's attractive to others. Let your desperation drive you to a God who's desperate for you. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your heart. Thank you for longing to know us. Thank you for wooing us. Thank you for chasing us. Thank you for meeting us right where we are. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. As you head out today, if you came prepared to give us some offering boxes on the way out, if you're new to Horizon, we'd love to say, hey, third door on your left is the hearth room. We'll see you all next week.